one coming right now. To which I told the coach, there's also no we in teams. Uh, I don't know what happened, but I'm sure I got in trouble for that, as usual. Uh, but I learned early on in my illustrious sports career, which only ended in, which only went through high school, is that I excelled at individual sports, whether it was chess, and yeah, I'll call that a sport, uh, or wrestling, or martial arts, or boxing, when I, or track and field, which I did all through grade school and high school. Uh, when I was competing with myself and only with myself against another person, and I had no teammates, I succeeded. When I had teammates, we had problems. Because I had this high standard of perfection and giving it your all when it comes to a sport. And when I had a teammate that was slacking, I made sure everyone around me knew that they were slacking and they were the reason why we lost. So when I got to high school, I didn't do team sports. I was much better of an individual sports person. And then I realized in that process, because I always kind of prided myself, oh, I do this on my own. I win or lose on my own. I succeed on my own, win or lose. And then I had a coach tell me one time, uh, because I, I had this horrible attitude of being, it's all me, it's all me, it's all me, said that, uh, where do you think I would be if I didn't have any coaches? I said, well, I, I wouldn't know what to do. He said, what if you didn't have any teammates that practiced with you? wouldn't get any practice done. And he went down this list of making me realize I had a team. Everyone surrounding me wants me to succeed. We want our team to win. We want the individuals to win. And even though it was an individual sport, I relied on a huge number of people to help me get to that point. And so in the end, I realized I am a team player because I am surrounded by coaches and other, 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 other athletes, other friends that I relied on to get me better and better and better. No one in the sports world succeeds simply by themselves, isolated from everyone else. They all rely on the people next to them, the coaches, uh, the parents, the support, the encouragement, everyone has a team behind them, even if they're competing all on their own. And today we're going to look in the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, who was the wisest person ever to live. And we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And this is commonly used for weddings. Commonly used for weddings. And there's nothing wrong with it being used for weddings. But the point of the text is not weddings. The whole point of this chapter has nothing to do with weddings. It has to do with individual effort and team effort. And it can be applied to weddings. Uh, but it's not a text about weddings and marriage, although it has a lot of heart connection to that. Communities, teamwork, and encouragement are vital parts of living the life together. No one can do the Christian life and succeed. No one can do the Christian life and advance and mature and grow by doing it alone, by doing it themselves, by refusing to let others come in and train and teach and encourage and walk alongside of you. 
Christianity is not an isolated religion. You cannot do it on your own. Now, there are some religions where, hey, alone is all that you achieve for. But Christianity is a group effort. It's a team effort. It's a family effort. And so let's look, first of all, at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. The first of those verses. So if you turn there in your Bible or your version Bible app, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. And it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. God intends us to take this journey together. There was a job that I had in seminary uh, working for Lear Corporation, and we built uh, car parts and uh, most specifically seats for the BMW plant in South Carolina where the Z3 was made, so I, I worked on uh, the production line there. And we had this team building event come in and uh, give us this exercise, and it was a fantastic exercise on the value of having two people working on a project versus one person working on a project. And he asked for individuals to ask, answer the question, how many uses can you come up with a paperclip? Common paperclip. How many uses are there for a paperclip? And you wrote down all your answers that you got. But then he said, okay, now I want every table to work on that together. So every table worked on that together. And everyone walked out of there realizing that when we have a cooperative environment of teamwork, working towards the same goal, we can accomplish more. We came up with more ideas when we had a group than when we were by ourselves trying to think of how many different ways can you use a paperclip. Now that was an insignificant exercise as far as what it produced, but we gained an understanding that when we do it together, we have a far greater ability to succeed beyond an individual effort. Well, you can think of this in lots of different ways. When you have one individual working on your car versus a team of individuals working on your car, you can get the car done quicker. Um, have you ever seen, well, I know you've seen those pit stops for races like a NASCAR or Formula One. It amazes me because it would take me 30 minutes to change a tire. In fact, in all honesty, I call AAA. And I wait two hours for it to get changed. But if I had to do it on my own, at least 30 minutes to figure out how to put the jack together, and then that's why they call AAA. But if you see those guys in the pit stops changing those cars, all four tires, windshield, filling it up, wiping everything down, giving the driver a drink, 10 seconds. And it's, yes, the equipment is designed for that, but they have a crew of 25 to 30 people on the, on the car and behind the scenes making sure everything is ready. It gets done so much quicker if they just had a pit stop of one person doing all that work. So many hands make the labor light. And we see that in Scripture time and time again. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the story of how the church began to act in the New Testament, we see in chapter 2, starting in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That early church environment was incredibly stressful. They didn't have anywhere that they could go to on a Sunday morning and just show up, have a cup of coffee, a donut, and sit in a comfortable chair and have a Bible in their lap. They didn't have that luxury that we have. And so every day, if they wanted to learn something about how to love God and love others, how to pursue godliness, how to change Jerusalem and the uttermost parts of the world, they needed to get together and listen to the apostles. They had no other way. And it wasn't just the teaching that they came for. They came for the fellowship. They were the minority. They were the outcast. Their leader had just been crucified. James, and a little later on, is martyred by Paul. That early church there knew the importance of how we would describe it today, hanging out with one another. Because hanging out with one another, there's, there's a security there. There is a protection there. There is a comfort there. There is a security. There is just a well-being of it's going to be okay. We are all in this together. And when you have that mindset that, hey, we're all in this together, I rely on others, and others rely on me, the load is easier to bear. There is joy in helping people. And I know that you've experienced, I, I've seen it firsthand. When you serve and you help others in small, sometimes insignificant ways, there's joy in your heart from doing that. There's excitement when you're able to take care of a need and help and maybe come up here and sing or play an instrument or take care of the donuts or clean. Small things, but there's real sincere joy that comes out when you do that. I've seen it in you. And this just simply states it's a necessary part of our Christian life that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. You can get so much more done working together than working alone. And the Christian life is like that. Second, teamwork produces a great reward more than just individual work. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus sends out his 72 disciples at that point, and he sends them out into the villages two by two. Two by two. Why does Jesus send them out two by two? Because if he sent everyone out by themselves, he would have covered twice as many towns. He would have had twice as many witnesses twice as many contacts, twice as many opportunities to get the message out, but he sends them out two by two. Why do you think Jesus does that? Well, besides being an incredible leader, he knows people's characters, he knows our downfalls, our pitfalls, and he also knows how we succeed, and when we do it together and we have another person next to us, sometimes for accountability reasons, we are able to kind of get above the fray. We're able to work things out in a way that we would never have thought was possible. You know, seeing someone next to us who's struggling through something, it's amazing how God can put someone in their life who is at a point where they are strong, where they've gone through that. 
And they can say, hey, I've been there. I know exactly what you're feeling. I know exactly what you're going to be feeling. I know exactly how anxious you are, how worried you are, how scared you are. I've been there. But let me tell you about how God intervenes and removes the fear, removes the worry, removes the concern, and puts confidence in your heart that he's loved. And it's amazing how many times in a marriage relationship where one of the partners, the husband or the wife, is just having a bummer of a day. And the other spouse is like walking on cloud nine and how they can bring encouragement exactly when you need it. And the Lord just has this way of making it work where it doesn't seem like both of you are down at the same time. Gives you help all the way along the way. And so that's why Jesus sent those disciples out two by two in pairs in couples, so that they would be able to strengthen and encourage one another when the other one was feeling down, dragged, and almost felt like giving up. The other person could come along and say, I need to give you the encouragement that you deserve. And you've done that. I've seen that in your lives. I've seen how some of the volunteers in the kids' ministries have just brightened up the days for those kids. And I have seen how those kids can brighten up and change the mood of the volunteers, right? That, that's a two-way street. We're not expecting it. That person will encourage you. That person will say hi. That person will just shake your hand and you just go, that was, that was nice. It was nice to meet someone. It was nice for them to say hello. I got encouragement from that. That's what the scripture is telling us. It's part of our Christian life. Working together. The third thing that I think the reason why God wants us in groups and not as individuals is found in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, verse 4. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Anybody remember those commercials probably back in the 80s? Maybe seventies. Uh, I've fallen and I can't get up. Right? You talk to someone. It's real serious. You talk to someone who lives alone, who has physical challenges. One of their greatest fears is falling and not being able to be helped up. And so we laugh at that commercial. Great product. It probably saved lots of people a lot of headache. That security. But there's the truth. One falls down, someone is there to pick them up. How can you live the Christian life alone? Because I know you're going to fall down. I know there's going to be times where you are just, you don't want to get out of bed. You don't know how to deal with that problem. You are frustrated. You are maybe angry. Who's going to be there next to your side to say, you're going to make it through? It doesn't have to be a spouse. It doesn't have to be a kid. It doesn't have to be a parent. God says, that's our responsibility as believers towards one another. You have more than just the responsibility to say hello to someone on a Sunday morning as you're walking in. You have a responsibility to say when you see them down, hey, how about you go sit down and I'll grab you a cup of coffee. How do you like it? That, something that simple is ministry. Something that simple is encouragement. And every one of you can do that. Every one of you have done that. 
And that's what Jesus inspires us to do constantly, time and time again. Come alongside and encourage. Encourage, encourage, encourage. Because there might be a day where you are super strong right now. That you are super encouraging right now. That you are living the high life and you are on cloud nine and you are the strongest person that anyone could ever meet. There will be a day, though, because we're human, where you are going to feel rock bottom. You're going to feel like the prodigal son, that you have just squandered everything and you are wallowing in a pig sty. If you isolate yourself and play that macho man that you need no help, you're going to have very few friends that can come alongside and help. So we're encouraged to do just that. Help the one who has fallen down. Now, has anyone ever heard of Derek Redmond? Not a real famous person, but I have a video of him in the semifinals. I think it was in the Olympics of Sydney, the Sydney Olympics. And as soon as you see the video, you're going to go, oh, I remember watching this on the news. favored to win the gold medal at that Olympics. And at the beginning of that first turn of the race, he tore his hamstring. And you could see the race finished. And he was left on the track. And do you know who ran out of the stands to help him? 
who was his dad, his father. And every time security and the track officials came up to him and said, hey, you need to leave, he's like, no, this is my son. I'm out of here. I'm helping him pass the track, pass the line. That is what it is like to walk the Christian life with other brothers and sisters who can help you in times of need. Has anyone here ever had a need? I don't care what it is. I mean, physical, spiritual, mental, it doesn't matter. And if you didn't raise your hand, we need to talk because in five minutes I'll tell you what your need is. If we've all stumbled, if we've all at times hurt, if we've all at times felt everyone's past us, everyone's finished, I'm alone. That is when the beauty of the community of believers that's when everyone runs out of the stand and says, I got your back. Lean on me. We'll take you to the end. That's not just for family members of blood, but that's for family members of the blood of Christ. That is thicker, stronger, longer lasting than family relationships because it is a relationship that goes into eternity. And Derek we just simply saw that expression of help, of comfort, assurance, of someone to lean upon. We're all Derek's. We need help. We cannot get through the Christian life on its own. It's not designed to be a solo event. It's designed to be a team event, a family event. In verse 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon continues and says, Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? When I think of this, you know what I immediately think of? Star Wars and uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Does anybody remember the first few scenes of that movie? Well, it's old enough that if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, but I'm going to give away. Uh, Luke is on Hoth, which is an ice planet, and he gets separated from Han Solo. The Empire has found them, and Luke is just sort of off on his own, and it gets terribly cold, and he's attacked by a... Uh, oh, what is he attacked by? A hairy kind of... I totally forgot the name of it. I'll remember it at some point. So if I blurt out a name, it's there. Uh, but this big bear type of man-bear thing. Captured, he escapes through the use of the force and his uh, lightsaber, and he's wandering by himself in the midst of a huge blizzard, and Han Solo comes to his rescue, and he's freezing cold. And what does Han Solo do? He's got his, I forgot the name of that thing too, another furry animal that he rides, a tauntaun. A tauntaun, yes. And uh, it dies because it's so cold, even this furry creature that lives in the cold is too cold. And Han Solo cuts it open and shoves Luke Skywalker inside. I don't think Solomon was thinking that when he wrote this. I really don't. But if he was writing it today, he'd probably think, oh, yeah, it's a lot like being put into a tauntaun when it's really cold. And, oh, they're smelly on the outside and the inside. But the principle is it's warm. It's warm. And 
The fact is, it is warm. You're sleeping next to your spouse, it's warm. There's a coziness. You have a dog or a cat in your bed, it's hot. But there is, there is just that common understanding in survival moments where there's desperation, where life is really on the line. Hey, when you're, when you're next to someone, when you're comforted by someone, when you're near to someone, there's safety. There's comfort. There's warmth. There's protection. There's a feeling of it's going to be okay. Yeah, it might be smelly. It might be messy. I get it, but it's going to be okay. So bundle up and stay close. And that's in every kind of survival sense. You never split up. You always stay together. What happens to the person in a survival story that splits off and goes on by their own? Kind of like every horror story that's ever been. You go by yourself, what happens? They get you. And so you stay together. You stay together. And I think that's exactly what uh, uh, Solomon is trying to get across there. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're given another um, glimpse into this. When the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the writer of Hebrews adds this very interesting thing at the end of that verse. As you see the day approaching. He's talking about the end of time, the end of the world, the return of Jesus Christ. As you see that coming, as you are closer to that date, you better be closer to each other. You better be nearer to each other. You better have more fellowship with each other. You better be relying on one another. You better be comforting one another. You better be spurring each other on even more to good works and to encouragement and to God's glory. Because sooner and sooner the day is going to come. Was written almost 2,000 years ago. Are we living closer to the day of Jesus' return than they did 2,000 years ago? Oh, yes. Absolutely. We are living a lot closer to the day than they were. So shouldn't we even more so spur one another on towards good works, to encouragement, to think godly thoughts, to have godly feelings, to do godly actions? Absolutely. We should be closer and more intimate in our fellowship and our relationship with each other and our prayer for one another and our encouragement of one another than the church was 2,000 years ago. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at the book of Acts and you see how close they were, they were so close that none of them were in need. They were so close that they spent day after day after day with each other. They were so close that they had everyone in their home. And you were in everybody else's home. They were so close that they saw their friends martyred and comforted each other. Go 2,000 years in the future. The average person attends church twice a month for an hour each time. That is the norm for the connection and fellowship that most believers have in America. Instead of getting better at this, working together, being together, fellowshipping together, striving to encourage one another, we've kind of gone backwards. We've become more isolated, more individualistic, 
more that's not about religion. I do it on my own terms. No, you don't. And if you do, you shouldn't. We do it on God's terms, and God's terms are we do it together. And yes, it is messy when you do life together. And yes, it is messy when you invite other people into your lives because they can hurt you. And they can disappoint you. And you can argue with them. Totally understand all that. But God never says, hey, have fellowship with only the people you always get along with. Because you know how many people you'd be with? You'd be by yourself. And I've been by myself before, and I can argue with myself just fine. So that's not even a solution. But God says we need to live this life together. It's non-negotiable. Because he calls us brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. He's adopted us into what he calls his family. His family. And so there is a close relationship that we have with one another. And lastly in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says in verse 12 of chapter 4, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Real practical example. If I've got a buddy with me, and there's one person in opposition, I feel a lot more encouraged with a buddy with me. Especially if he's really big and strong and, and you know, that kind of thing. But there's always that idea of safety. Safety in numbers. There's a safety factor there. And God says, it's very real. If you have someone who's going to steal or rob from you, and there's two of you, less likely it's going to happen. Most mugging victims are alone. They're not in groups. Even, even the, uh, the thieves and the robbers, they have this sense where I go to the least intimidating target. And if there's two people, that's a hazard. That's more difficult to get around than just a single person by themselves. And so God reiterates that and says, hey, being together, there is safety as opposed to trying to live life alone. See, when you try to live the Christian life alone, I guarantee you what's going to happen. I guarantee you, you are going to miss something vital in your own character. You are going to think you're doing great, you're doing fine, and the whole time you are blind to something right in front of you. Having that friend, having that Christian family member, having that fellowship gives you that extra pair of eyes that sometimes pierces deep to the heart that says, hey, this isn't the right way to act, talk, or feel. And when we're doing it ourselves, we don't notice it because we're, we're often blind to our own challenges and our own deficiencies because we want to think the best of ourselves. Well, we can find the deficiencies in others, so that's easy. But when we turn those introspective eyes and thoughts to our own heart, it's hard to see those deficiencies. But having that person right alongside of us is a great encouragement. And then uh, Solomon ends with this idea of a three-fold three cord is not quickly broken. It's hard to break. And so ropes, even ropes in modern era, wind themselves more than just one, more than just two, three, and multiple strands in order to gain strength. There is strength in numbers. And you see, bottom line is we are in a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war that is about heaven and hell. It's about life and death. It's about truth 
and error. It's real war. And if we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ and we do not invite others to be part of our circle, we are inviting trouble. We are inviting downfall. Now, for a while, you may be able to deceive. For a while, you may be able to put a great face on it. For a while, you may be able to have great devotion, great insight to your own heart. But it'll turn on you quickly. During the Middle Ages, maybe around 500, 600 A.D., actually, uh, the Roman Catholic Church thought that they could find the solution to the problem of sin. That they were really struggling with sin and the effects of sin. And they decided what's probably best is if we isolate ourselves. And we're not just talking about walking in and out of a church service without talking to someone. We're talking about actually physically isolating themselves into what later became known as monasteries. And the further and the more remote you could get, the better off you would be spiritually. Do you know what they found happened in history in those monasteries? The sin was still sin was still there. But yet they isolated themselves from all the bad culture, all the bad things, all the bad stuff. Sin was still there. Present in their little isolated rooms because they had taken something with them. Something that you cannot separate yourself from. They took with them, you know what? Their heart. innermost being that God says I'm going to cherish and love but be careful it's deceitful and in order to get a proper read on your character you're going to need others right alongside don't think you can read your own character others can read it a lot better we have one last clip as we close off and this is from uh, a public transportation company in the Netherlands and the video says it all in English. Actually, I don't think there is any English, but... that we have to get rid of our cars and all take public transportation. But the point of the clip was, when you are by yourself, you are vulnerable. When you're in a group, on a bus, you can withstand even your worst of enemies. But done in a very funny and kind of lighthearted way, that's the point of what Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is getting across. Is yes, you can for a moment survive. But if you want to thrive in the Christian life, then to thrive, you need to do it together. I was told, uh, Buddhist religion in the house that we have, there were three aspen trees in this little group in our, in our front yard, and uh, someone told me, well, you know, all aspens all grow in a group of at least three. They can't grow by themselves. And me being very smart arborist that I am. Like, well, yeah, whatever. Trees grow. They don't need 
hairs and crinkles to grow, then one dies. And the next one dies. And then it just kind of cut it down because we had two dead trees next to another tree that was really struggling to stay alive. And I realized, you know, that's, that's a weird quirk of nature that God has just implanted in that species. And I, I'm sure there's other plants and trees that do that as well, where you need groups of it to thrive and live. But I saw a real-life example of what it's like to have a healthy community of aspen trees. And then when one suffers, the community goes away. The same is true in our Christian lives and experiences. When one suffers and they isolate themselves, it never surprises me that they struggle. It never surprises me that it's tough for them to get back into the routine of Christian living because they don't have that support. They don't have that fellowship. They don't have that encouragement. They don't have people spurring them on. And so really it is a twofold task that we're faced with. It's a twofold task. The first thing is, is that we need to make ourselves available to others. We need to make ourselves available to others. In, in, your, uh, in that front pocket in front of you, and you see it all the time, there's that little sheet that says, how can we basically love one another? What are some practical ways of loving one another? You can take that sheet. We have more in the back. It's there every week. It just gives you a sample of ideas of, hey, it's so-and-so's birthday. What should we do? Well, it has an idea of what you do. So-and-so is celebrating an anniversary. What can I do? So-and-so is sick. What can I do? So-and-so is in the hospital. What can I do? And it gives you the tools to be that person in their lives. Because God placed you here. So I know that he has a role for you in the person maybe on the opposite side of the room that you recognize, but you haven't met him in 20 years being here. And then secondly, not only be the person that helps, but it is okay says, I need help. I need fellowship. I need that connectivity. I need that support. I'm tired of trying to do this alone. And that doesn't make you into some sort of super sappy, needy Christian. It makes you into a normal Christian. Because a normal Christian says, I'm here to encourage you but I also need encouragement. Let's pray. Father, as you have designed our lives to be working with each other and reliant upon each other, help us, Lord, to both be that person that comes alongside and encourages and sometimes just gives a, a gentle hug of, I know you're here and I care about you. And help us also, Father, to beat down that pride that says, I don't need any help. I'm self-reliant. I'm self-sufficient. I can do it on my own. Father, we can't get through life like that. We certainly can't get through the Christian life and the war that you've put us in and these spiritual things. Help us, Father, to be both of these normal Christians towards one another. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. That finishes our series on the games. We have uh, next week, and then starting in December, we have our new series.
So grab those invite cards that are on the back table. Give it to someone that you may know. And in about five minutes, we'll have the children come up here and we'll do the children's choir practice. God bless everyone. Have a great week. And uh, does anyone know if the Broncos scored yet? Maybe. I don't know.